So names often have meaning. We, we think a lot about names that uh, we give to our children. Our parents thought long and hard about the name they gave to, to us. Names have meaning, but that's been lost a little bit in our modern Western culture. Uh, we go for uh, the way it rolls off the tongue or, you know, what in each kind of new generation are the, are the more popular in the baby name books. And uh, not to uh, disparage that, but impregnating a name with significant meaning is a practice that's still alive and well in a lot of cultures. So our precious Nigerian brothers and sisters in this church who are seated right back there in the middle, um, name their children with beautiful Igbo names from a Nigerian mother tongue. So Chikama is God is best. She's sitting in the room today and yes, he is best. Uh, Chizara, God answers my prayers. Chinedum, God leads me. Chibuakam, God is my strength. So if we spoke their mother tongue, like you hear Jordan, and you don't really think much about it. But if I told you, um, it's such a joy for me to be here today. I've never been here before. I'd like to introduce myself. My name is the God of the universe deserves all your worship. That's kind of how they name their kids. I think that's pretty cool. Uh, let's resurrect that. Joshua's name is like that. We hear Joshua. We actually know a lot of Joshua's. There's, a, there's, a, there's an ongoing raging sore spot in our family because Tracy wanted our Andrew to be a Joshua. We have a Caleb. I messed it up. I think it fits. We like it. I think he likes it. If you were in Old Testament Israel and you heard the name Joshua, you would hear it like this. The covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who is saves. That's what you would hear. His name is composed of two parts. The first part, Yah, means capital L-O-R-D, Jehovah. The second part, Hebrew word for salvation. Together, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, He is salvation. One commentator wrote, the name describes a special role that Moses, who renamed him to Joshua from Hoshea, Moses wanted his name to have a certain ring in the ears of the people. Hoshea means he has saved. The person of God who saves in the name Hoshea is not very clear. Who is he who saves? But when you hear Joshua, you should hear Yahweh saves. Jehovah saves. When the Lord Jesus bursts onto the scene, not yet visible to the human eye, but in the womb of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, an angel shows up to his earthly father Joseph and says, I'm not making any suggestions that you get the baby name book out. Name him Jesus. For 
He will save his people from their sins. That's his name. That's who he is. Salvation is a person. Today we're beginning a journey through the Old Testament book of Joshua. We plan to spend, counting today, 12 weeks setting our faces toward the Lord Jesus through the pages of this book. The aim of the opening sermon today is to try to see the whole book and, Lord willing, in the next 11 sermons to take a closer look at its parts in relationship to the whole. In three months' time, if God wills, we will seek to digest about 65 years of Old Testament history. We know from Joshua 14.10 that Joshua was, was about 45 years old when Israel crossed under his leadership through the Jordan River, its dry riverbed, and we know in Joshua 24 that when Joshua died, he was 110 years old. You can do the math, that's 65 years. A couple of months ago, we gave an outline of the book of Joshua to our congregation. There are more copies of this on the welcome table. I commend it to you because if you're anything like me, seeing how it fits together will blow your mind. It's not haphazard. The human author didn't sit down and just kind of extemporaneously, sporadically, like a lot of my preaching, say stuff. It's very structured. It's very well ordered. He's highlighting significant points even by the structure of the book. There are copies of that available on the back table. There are also copies of this available on the back table. This is our sermon card. It goes from uh, today through the end of next month, and it tells you the sermon texts that, Lord willing, will be preached on the coming Sundays. So, acquaint yourself with that. I encourage you and your household to make it your business to read and reread or listen and re-listen to the book of Joshua for the next 12 weeks and to be praying and seeking to lay hold of Christ through these Old Testament pages. He is the true and greater Joshua. Our sermon text for today is the whole book, but I'm going to draw your attention to one verse. And I confess on the front end, we're going to read a lot of verses in Joshua, so if you're a Bible flipper, I encourage you to get ready for that. Joshua 23, verse 14. Give you a moment to find that. Joshua 23, 14, and it's my apologies because I put the wrong reference, though it's that verse. This says 24, 14. That's 100% my fault. Uh, but the right, referent, the right verse is there. It's 23, 14, and that's our sermon text for today. I think it's the key verse of the whole book. Hear the word of the Lord. Now behold, today I'm going the way of all the earth. Joshua's saying, I'm dying. Now behold, today I'm going the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you not one of them has failed. Join me at the throne of grace as we pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for you. We thank you for being the promise-making, promise-keeping Lord. Thank you for, as the New Testament says, accomplishing all of your good pleasure. Thank you for calling a people to yourself, making magnificent promises to them, and fulfilling all that you have promised. We especially thank you for your commitment to carry out the fulfillment of your promises at great cost to yourself, for promising rest, not in time only, but 
especially for eternity, eternal rest of soul for all of your people and providing that rest to us in the person of Christ and through his death and resurrection. Just as Israel entered the promised land, the book of Joshua, as through them you conquered every foe, you distributed that territory to your people, so we pray that you will invade our lives. You will conquer all resistance to you in our heart that you will give every portion of every part of all of our life to Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. The book of Joshua begins with Joshua's call from the Lord to assume leadership among Israel after the death of Moses. The book of Joshua ends with Joshua's death and burial after a lifetime of faithful service to the Lord. Same God, new man. One scholar's summary of Joshua, Gleason Archer in his survey of Old Testament introduction said, the content of Joshua is this, the narrative records the history of Israel from the passage of Joshua's army over the river Jordan to Joshua's final retirement following his farewell speech. The theme of the book concerns the irresistible power of God's people in overcoming the world and taking permanent possession of their promised inheritance, provided only they maintain a perfect trust in God's strength and permit no sin of disobedience to break their covenant relationship with him. Joshua had a remarkable life before we make it to this book. He's seen here leading God's people into the promised land, and it's certainly a remarkable life in the book. But even before, he had been permitted in Exodus 33 to be Moses' aide from the time of his youth. He was privileged to accompany Moses, Exodus 24, up to the Mount of Sinai. He was one of the 12 spies sent into the land of Canaan, he and Caleb being the only ones who brought back that favorable report in Numbers 13 and 14 that Israel should go and take the land. As a result of only those two out of the 12 giving that faith-filled report, they are the only two that were permitted among their number to enter the promised land. Numbers 14, when Moses was just about to die, Joshua went with him into the tent of meeting, Deuteronomy 31, where Moses, in the presence of the Lord, encouraged Joshua to be strong and courageous. Moses assured Joshua that the Lord would be with him as the Lord had been with Moses and that God would use Joshua to bring the Israelites into the land, Deuteronomy 31. That's all before we get to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua divides itself naturally into three parts, chapters 1 to 8, Chapters 9 to 12, chapters 13 to 24. A lot of people say it's just two parts. 1 to 12, 13 to 24. But there's something that happens right there in the middle of uh, 8 and 9. So I'd say 1 to 8, 9 to 12, 13 to 24. If you can get those handles, you'll have the outline of the book of Joshua. Leaning on David Dorsey's literary structure of the Old Testament, Pastor David Schrock shows how each of those parts uh, unfold. Chapters 1 to 8 enter, chapters 9 to 12, conquer, chapters 13 to 24, a lot, distribute. 
Those three sections show how God used Joshua to bring God's people into the promised land, enter, conquer their enemies, and distribute that land to God's people. That'll be our outline for today. That'll actually be our outline for the next 11 weeks. I invite you to use that guide on that table to help prepare yourself for these sermons. So first, chapters 1 to 8. This will be our longest point, fair warning. Uh, It's the most substantial part of the whole book. And then a very small point, two, chapters 9 to 12. And then not as long as number 1, chapters 13 to 24. Chapters 1 to 8, enter. What are these chapters about? They're about the victory of Yahweh in the land of Israel. This section is symmetrical. So chapter 1 begins like chapter 8 ends. And the symmetry at the beginning and end is a focus on the law of the Lord. So if you put your finger on Joshua chapter 1 and your finger on Joshua chapter 8, we'll read a couple of passages. Joshua 1 verse 7, the Lord said to Joshua, only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or the left so that you may have success wherever you go. Verse 8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you'll make your way prosperous and you'll have success. So a clear focus on the law of Moses in God's call to Joshua. This man is to walk according to the words of the word of God. But that's also the conclusion of the first section. So in chapter 8, if you'll look at verse 30, this is after the conquest of Ai, the city that they had failed to destroy and were defeated by because of the sin of Achan. After the conquest of Ai, Joshua 8.30, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, in Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the sons of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no man had wielded an iron tool, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Verse 32, he wrote there on the stones a copy of the law of Moses. Probably took a long time, especially in stone which he had written in the presence of the sons of Israel. Verse 33, all Israel with their elders and officers and their judges were standing on both sides of the ark before the, pardon me, before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as the native. Half of them stood in front of Mount Gerizim. Half of them stood in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at first to bless the people of Israel. Look at verse 34. Then afterward, He, Joshua, read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. Verse 35, there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the women and the little ones and the strangers who were living with them. He read it to them again. So at the beginning, Joshua, pay attention to the words of this book. After they experienced some victory in the land, evidence of God fulfilling his promises, there's a focus on the law. So we can see that Joshua's job was to put into action the words of the word of the Lord. God's business was to assign, Joshua's business was to obey. Israel was to hear and heed the words of God. It's a very very obvious application, isn't there? 
that we should draw for our lives today, right here, right now? Do you think that God is making suggestions to you for how you should live your life? Or what areas do you get to negotiate with Him? There's a very obvious application. Obedience to the Word of God is incumbent upon us all. John Calvin said of these two passages, chapter 1 and 8, the study of the law must be assiduous because when it is omitted, even for a short time, many errors slip in and our memory grows rusty. Besides, when continuous study of God's law is neglected, many things become strange and difficult to practice. Therefore, God orders his servant to persist in the daily study of the law and never cease to pursue it as long as he lives. Whence it follows that those who show contempt for the study of God's word are blinded by their intolerable arrogance. I think Calvin would say, if you're not devoted to God's word, you actually have no clue how arrogant you are. So after God patiently waited out a whole generation of disobedient Israelites to die in the wilderness, God enabled Joshua and Caleb and their generation to enter the land. Look at Joshua chapter 5, verse 6. For the sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness. Joshua 5, 6. Until all the nation, that is the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord had sworn that he would not let them see the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us a land flowing with milk and honey. Pop quiz. Why did a 13-day walk Egypt to Israel take 40 years? If you put a backpack on your shoulders and you walk from Cairo, Egypt to Jerusalem, it's going to take you about two weeks. Now, it's pretty hot, and you may have a little bit of delay, so let's say two months. No, no, no. Let's say you get really tired, two years. Why did it take 40 years to get from here to here? God told you in Joshua chapter 5, because God was waiting to kill them all. That's why it took so long. They don't get to come in because they don't live in obedience to his word. Hebrews says in chapter 3 about that experience, they died in the wilderness to quote God because of their unbelief. I think most of Old Testament Israel was unregenerate. Between the sandwich of a focus on God's law and God telling us in the middle why he didn't let some of Old Testament Israel enter but only that younger generation... Israel does enter enter the land of Canaan under Joshua's leadership. Many immediate interventions of God's supernatural power are found in chapters 1 to 8 of Joshua. It is kind of the main meat of the whole book. In this portion, Israel advances into the land. How do they get there? Well, just draw your attention to a couple of pieces that we'll hear more about, Lord willing, in the weeks to come. Joshua sends in some men kind of scope it out right before they enter. When Joshua sends in these two men, you know the story. They find themselves at Rahab's house, the harlot, the prostitute. 
She's a God-fearer. She says to them in Joshua uh, somewhere, chapter 2, verse 8, she knew that the Lord had given Israel the land and that the terror of Israel had fallen on all the Canaanites and that all the inhabitants of the land hearts had melted away before Israel. She knew that before they got there, somehow. So Rahab told the spies in Joshua 2, 9 to 11, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. We have heard what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Here's a regenerate Canaanite woman. So having heard the report from the spies when they got back to Joshua from Rahab's house, Joshua instructed for Israel to prepare to cross the Jordan River. God gave him some detailed instructions. We'll hear more about that later. But as Israel prepares to cross, there's a problem. There's an impediment. There's a barrier. It's a big river. You can't get across it. Let's imagine the I-40 and 55 bridge didn't exist and all of our sweet Arkansans who came over this morning, there's a few of them filling up this front row, had to swim it to get over here. Probably wouldn't turn out too well for them. Joshua 3.13, it shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priest who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan will be cut off. The waters which are flowing down from above will stand up in one heap. Joshua 3, 17, and the priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. That's how they got in the land. Joshua 4, every tribe did something as soon as they got in the land. Joshua told representatives from every tribe, all 12 of them, to go to the middle of that dry riverbed, get you a big rock, carry it out, and make you a pile of memorial stones. Joshua 4, verse 6, why do you pile up stones? Let this be a sign among you so that when your children ask later, what do these stones mean to you? You say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, so these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. There's another application. We've already said we have to devote our lives to God's word. What's this application? As parents and churches, we ought to have emblems, practices, routines in our lives that are the evidences of the Lord's grace. Our children should be asking us from time to time, why do we do that? What does this mean? And our answer should be, because there was a time when we experienced the miraculous mercies of the Lord. This is one reason we take the Lord's Supper every week. Not the main reason, but it's a reason. Because we want kids to be asking parents, what do these stones mean? Why do you keep piling them up? And we say, oh, I'm so glad you asked. These elements are a memorial to the good news that Yahweh is salvation. Jesus saves. Chapter 5, the middle of the first section, I think the main point, a new generation 
of God's people are in the promised land. That generation had not yet been circumcised, receiving the visible sign of the covenant. So God instructs Joshua to have the men circumcised. They're renewing their covenant with the Lord. And then they start eating the good stuff. Remember land flowing with milk and honey? Remember when the spies went into the land? What did they bring back? They had big poles between grown men's shoulders and clusters of grapes so heavy it was causing the iron beams or wood beams or whatever they had to sag because these grapes were so gigantic. Could you imagine eating a grape this big? They're in the land. They're drinking the milk. They're tasting the honey. They're eating the fruit. So what does God do? Dries up the manna for the first time in 40 years. No kid said, manna again? Nope. No more manna tomorrow. You get the good stuff. So they're circumcised. There's no more manna. And then something happens. Somebody shows up. Joshua 5, look at verse 13. It came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our, or for our adversaries? Wrong question. The man said, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, take your shoes off. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This angel of the Lord is none other than the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity. This is a Christophany. This is an Old Testament appearance of Christ. When Joshua sees the angel, he had the wrong question. Are you on my side or their side? And the angel said, all that matters is who's on my side. Chapter 6, having given instructions to Joshua, that angel given him instructions, you know the great story of the fall of the walls of Jericho. So the symmetry is the Jordan River stands up, and in parallel to that, the Jericho walls fall down. And in the middle, there's this angel of the Lord. Joshua 6, 27, so the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. We're almost done with point number one. No sooner than the victory of Israel had happened at Jericho, God's judgment falls on the entire nation. Man, they were at such a high height, and then they go to such a low, low. But the judgment of God fell on the entire group because of the sin of one man, Achan. As a result of Achan's sin, Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. As a result, Israel was defeated in battle against Ai. Look at chapter, chapter 7, verse 6. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan, only to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. Verse 8, O Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies 
For the Canaanite and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of this and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So the Lord said to Joshua, verse 10, rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have even taken some of the things under the ban and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have, they have also put them among their own things. Verse 12, therefore the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Verse 13, rise up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow for thus says the Lord the God of Israel has said there are things under the ban in your midst O Israel you cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst so at the end of chapter 7 we find out God's good at making sinners hearts beat fast you may have been hiding from God your whole life trifling with God all your days before you came to this service today. And I'm telling you right here, right now, the God of the universe by the power of the Holy Spirit can haunt you. He's good at his job at making sinners' hearts beat fast. In Achan's case, God didn't say, it's him. God said, we're going to do a little reduction exercise. We're going to figure out what tribe we're going to figure out what family. We're going to figure out what man. And the arrows just kept pointing down, 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 down till the finger of God was in the face of Achan. When the walls of Jericho fell, Achan thought it would be a good idea to disobey what God said and take a little bit of the gold for himself, some of the plunder. God had already said no. 726. After Achan and his family are killed for their disobedience to God, they raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day. The Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor, trouble to this day. Until the sin was removed from the camp, the blessing of God could not be enjoyed for the people. There's another application, isn't there? How willing am I to keep you from God's blessing? How willing are you to keep us from God's blessing? As Pastor Nathan asked in a sermon on the churches of Revelation many years ago, how many in one congregation have to be in rebellion against God for Jesus to say to that church, I have this against you? How willing are we to let all God's people suffer because we won't let go of sin? That's the story of Achan. Then in chapter 8, Joshua leads Israel after Achan's death to obliterate Ai. Chapter 8, verse 25, 12,000 people one day dead. After that, Joshua etched the words of the Lord in stone. That's where we started and he spoke the blessings and the curses of the law to the people of Israel. That's point one. That's the big idea of the book of Joshua. 
what happens next. Chapters 9 to 12, you won't believe how short this point is, especially with me being the one preaching it. So it's enter, now it's conquer. That's chapters 9 to 12, the victory of Yahweh over the nations. What happens in the middle of the book of Joshua, chapters 9 to 12, is all the people of the land make a concerted, united effort to fight against Joshua and Israel. They see Jericho fell, Ai was defeated. Uh-oh, we better unite forces and fight against them. So they do it. But at the beginning of this middle section, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, we're just told all of them united to fight. At the end of this section, chapter 12, they're listed one by one as God defeated them. Look at chapter 9, verse 2. They gathered themselves together with one accord to fight against Joshua and against Israel. If you skim chapter 12, you'll see that the Holy Spirit takes pains to list 31 kings, name by name. It's not all of them, one accord, going to fight God's people. It's you die, you die, you die, you die 31 times. Here's the point. Your enemy is too big. If you're fighting against God, you have zero chance of victory. It does not matter who you align with. Satan himself is God's leash boy, and God will make sport of him and cast him into the abyss soon. No enemy can prevail against the Lord. That's the second point. The last point. Chapters 13 to 24, distribute. So you've entered the land, conquered the land. Now it's time to distribute, to allot the land to the people of God. That's the final portion, chapters 13 to 24. You could really say chapter 13 to 22 because there's an epilogue in 23, 24, but it's related to the distribution of the land. So we've just included it there in that big third category. One of the most amazing, moving, powerful, final words of one of the godly people in Scripture is recorded in chapters 23 and 24. Now, 13 to 22 is distribution. You guys get this part, you guys get that part, you guys get that part. But then Joshua gives his last will and testament. Chapters 23 and 24, I just want to draw your attention there briefly. Look at chapter 23, verse 8. Knowing he is about to die, the thing Joshua wants more than anything else It wasn't the bigger house in the promised land with the nice marble countertops. That's not what he cared about. It was for Israel to quote 23 verse 8, cling to the Lord your God. That's why God brought you here. Or 23 verse 10, The whole reason God drove out your enemies and gave you this land, one of your men puts flight to a thousand for the Lord your God is he who fights for you just as he promised you. So take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. 23.11. That's synonyms, by the way. What does it mean to love the Lord your God? 23.11. It means you cling to him. 23.8. He's not over there for you to use when you want him to do you a little magic trick. 
He's not your lucky rabbit's foot to give you some little blessing when you think you can't get yourself out of your own mess that you made. He's not a Cheshire cat in the sky. Cling to him, 23.8. That's what 23.11, love him, means. All of Christ, all of life. 24.23. Now therefore put away the foreign gods which are in your midst. And here's another synonym. Incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. Bend your heart to Jesus. That's what it looks like to love him. Joshua grounded all of his admonitions to cling, love, and incline your heart to the Lord in the faithfulness of God. That brings us back to where we started, 2314. It's the heart of the message of Joshua. This is why he says cling. This is why he says love. This is why he says incline your heart. 2314. I'm about to die. I'm going the way of all the earth. I want you to know in your heart and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for, for you. Not one of them has failed. This is a 110-year-old man. And the clearest recollection in his mind, the most outstanding, dominating memory he has, God is faithful. That's what he's saying. Therefore, cling. Therefore, love. Therefore, incline your heart to him. There's a subtle hint about the character of God in the life of Joshua between chapter 1 and 24. In chapter 1, verse 1, Joshua's the servant of Moses. In chapter 24, verse 29, he gets the same title Moses got. He's a servant of the Lord. You don't get your accolades at the beginning. They're at the end. There awaits for us a crown of righteousness. Walk faithfully. No borrowed sanctification. Joshua wasn't godly because he got to hang out with Moses in the presence of God. Joshua was godly because Joshua met with God and knew his heart. And at the end of his life, he's no longer servant of Moses. He's servant of the Lord. In chapter 24, Joshua recounts Israel's history to them. It's so important, here's another application for older generations to invest in younger generations, to be a faithful generation who entrusts these things to others, to remind younger generations of the great accomplishments of our God in our spiritual family tree. That's why Paul, writing to Titus, says to the church that he pastored, instruct the older women to teach the younger women This is how the gospel propagates one generation to another. I'm going to speak for all the Christians here, whether they're members of this church or not. If you're not yet a Christian, I'm not going to ask you to identify yourself, but I'm going to tell you, every single Christian in this room will joyfully do all they can to try to help you know and walk with God. All of us. And if they don't want to do that, they're not a Christian. We will all help you. If you want to know the Bible, if you want to know how to walk with Jesus, there is not one Christian who will not try to help you. Just let us help. It's in that context of recounting God's faithfulness over the generations in chapter 24 that Joshua uttered one of the most famous lines in all of Scripture. 24, 14. 
Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. Put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The people answered and said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. So just prior to his death, Joshua heard the people say, nope, no idolatry for us. We will serve Yahweh. He's our salvation. Joshua then formalized that moment with a covenant. We just saw that happen today. What are covenants all about? Like our church's covenant, it stands as a witness, either for us or against us. And that's the kind of covenant Joshua made in chapter 24, verse 26. Joshua wrote these things in the book of the law of God. He took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. 24, 27, Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be for a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord, which he spoke, against, which he spoke to us. Thus it shall be for a witness against you, so that you do not deny your God. He made a covenant. He ratified it right there. You said you want to serve God? All right, this big rock heard everything you said. I'm going to write your words on this rock. If you defect on him, here's the proof that you forsook him, not him forsook, forsaking you. All right, our application is, oh man, it's a whole book. Um, there are seven themes that dominate the book of Joshua. Land, that's the big one. God's promises, his covenant, his people's obedience, the purity of our worship, godly leadership, and rest. I'm going to make small mention of just a couple. In the Pentateuch, Genesis to Deuteronomy, Joshua shows up 29 times. In the New Testament, Matthew to Revelation, Joshua shows up two times, Acts 7 and Hebrews 4. In those locations, and in one other significant allusion to Joshua, all seven themes of the book of Joshua that I just listed for you are connected to Jesus. I've already told you Joshua's name means Yahweh is salvation, and Matthew 121 says Jesus' name means he will save you. Salvation is not a thing that God gives us. It's not a cosmic ooze that he pours out on you. Salvation's a person. If you do not have 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, if you do not have the Son of God, you do not have life. He is salvation. When Simeon, an aged priest, who ministered in the temple in the days that Jesus was born, saw Mary coming and bringing the eight-day-old Jesus to be circumcised, Simeon held Jesus, and he looked at his eight-day-old face and said, now, Lord, your servant can depart in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Salvation's a person, not a thing. So what are the three texts in the New Testament? rapid fire. The first one was our scriptural call to worship. That wasn't haphazard. This is a 
allusion to Jesus being the true and greater Joshua. The theme of rest in the book of Joshua is so prominent. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, the Lord Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. The thing your heart craves and you know as good as anybody else, all that you've tried to stick the little straw of your life to drink something that will satisfy has only left you more empty unless, unless, unless you've plunged your soul into the bounty of Christ. The rest that you want that feels so elusive is so massively available to you in Jesus. There's no reason you cannot have soul contentment. Not S-O-L-E, that too, but S-O-U-L. Inner heart contentedness. You can have Him. He said, come to me. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Doesn't sound very restful to have an ox's yoke strapped around your neck. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. If you're in training with the master, how did they train young oxen before there were big power implement pieces of equipment like tractors and combines? How did they plow their field? They did it with an ox. What did they put on the ox? A yoke. How did they train the next generation of oxen to plow the field? They double yoked them. They put them in a harness beside the bigger, stronger, well-trained ox that didn't pull against it and try to break against it. And so when the younger one was in the double yoke and it walked in lockstep with the bigger trained one, it felt no weight. But as long as it pulled and tried to fight against it, it felt all the pain. Are you yoked to Christ? Take my yoke on you because my yoke is easy. My burden is light. You only get rest if you walk in lockstep with Christ. I said the three categories of Joshua are enter, conquer, and allot, distribute. I'm not allegorizing Joshua, I don't think. When I say, it's a whole lot easier to try to get hyper-political with Jesus and want him to take out all your enemies. Whole lot easier for all the enemies out there to get conquered so that you can have some rest. Sure, it would be nice if a lot of these pagan people would get saved so I could live a little bit more comfortably from all the problems they keep causing me. It's a whole lot easier if the problem's out there. I think the main picture of Joshua, according to Hebrews chapter 4, is God still has some land to enter and to conquer and to take over and to divide and give to himself, hence my opening prayer. Jesus wants to come in. I don't know if you've ever felt like every Christian here has many times felt, certainly on our initial awakening, being given life by the Holy Spirit. We feel like a Mack truck is being driven through our chest. The gospel just moves through you, exposes you, shows you all your idols and sin and rebellion against God. And when Jesus moves in, he takes over. 
He's rearranging furniture. He's changing the locks on the doors. It's his house. He comes in, he conquers, and he distributes every part of you to himself. That's what rest is all about. I believe that's what Joshua is all about. And I'll conclude the book of Hebrews chapter 4. One of the two explicit references to Joshua in the New Testament. We're told in Hebrews 4.8, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day of rest after that. What does that mean? Well, first, the word for the name Joshua in Hebrews 4.8 is Jesus. Jesus. If Jesus play on words because the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, calls Joshua Jesus. If Jesus had given them rest, then 500 years later when David wrote Psalm 95, David wouldn't have said, there remains rest. You had not gotten it yet. If he did it, there's no more to be gotten. Hebrews 4.9, but there does remain a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who has entered into God's rest has himself also rested from all of his works as God did from his. How did God rest? That's the rest he offers you according to Hebrews 4.10. How did he rest? How did the true and greater Joshua give you rest? He quotes Genesis 2.2 in verse 4 to tell us how God rested. He rested on the seventh day from all his work. Did he rest because he was worn out? Fatigued from all those six days of creation? Was he exhausted? Did he need to take a break? Wipe the sweat from his brow? Is that why God rested? No. You get his rest as God rested. What did God do on the seventh day? He invited all of creation into what he had enjoyed for all eternity before he flung the galaxies into existence. He invited the whole universe to join him in exalting him, making much of him, delighting in him, worshiping him. That's the rest Jesus gives you. Therefore, Hebrews 4.11, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Or verse one, because there is a promise that still remains of entering his rest, make sure that you do not come short of it because a lot of people have had good news preached to them just as we have, but the word they heard did no benefit to them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. How do you get the rest of God? Hebrews 4.14 we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession because we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way just as we are without any sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus, when he rose from the dead, pierced the heavens. He went into the presence of God and he said, they're coming through me, so invite them in freely too. That's the rest you get. It's in the risen Jesus. With Joshua, the Lord Jesus stands before you today through his written word. And whether you like my animation or not, to be quite honest, I don't like it, but I can't help it. 
right here, right now, through his word written, Jesus, not Jordan, is standing and saying before you, if it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves now, today, whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers, who they served beyond the river, or the gods of any other pagan people, the Amorites, in whose land you once lived, Every person who's found rest in Jesus says with a hearty amen, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. That's what the book of Joshua is all about. Yahweh is salvation. His promises have never failed. All the good words which he has spoken have come, in, have come to pass. We know that he cannot fail. We know better than Joshua. How do we know he can't fail? Because he signed all of his covenant promises. He etched all of his redeeming love, not in stone, but in the wounds of his son and in the blood of the risen Jesus. Paul said, every promise God has ever made is a resounding yes. And one day very soon, I guarantee you, every person who's ever lived will agree that God is faithful. A brother in my church texted me, our church texted me late last night. He said, in view of this coming sermon series on Joshua, several brothers in our church got together, or, or I'll requote, some brothers read Joshua in its entirety several times over the past couple months. We had breakfast today, that's yesterday, to discuss it. They had five observations from their reading and rereading. This was the fifth quote, Jesus being the ultimate Joshua, the captain of the Lord's army who leads us to victory. I love that. Whether it's in your private devotions or in a group with other people, I encourage you to look to Jesus through the lens of Joshua. Why? Because Jesus is our rest. Because Yahweh is salvation. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, I thank you for Jesus. He is our salvation. We pray this in his name. Amen.